Day 1 and 2, John's testimony. Days 3 and 4, the calling of the first disciples. Now John tells us in chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day. But what he actually means is 3 plus the first four days. So on the seventh day is what he's saying. This is the end of week 1 of Jesus' orientation week. Getting to know Jesus through the lens of John's Gospel. The first calling of the disciples have been told, described. The first words of Jesus as recorded by John. The first miracle now we have here, the turning of water to wine. The first 12 chapters of John's Gospel are called the Book of Signs. Miracles and signs pointing towards the glory of Jesus. The, the second half of the book is also called, is often called, the Book of Glory. But right here in chapter 2, the turning of water to wine, John tells us, reveals through a sign Jesus' glory. So he brings those two themes, the entire theme of the book, together to teach us that our Savior, that we need so desperately, is named Jesus Christ. And let's pray and ask that he would reveal his glory to us as we hear his word today. God, as we gathered to pray earlier this morning, and as I know I've had conversations with people, people are getting tired of the same old life. They're getting tired of the same old sins. They're getting tired of the same old problems. And we're even tired of the same old people saying the same old things to us. And we need something new. We need something new, God, to replace the old. We need what many of us would call a miracle. A transformed heart. A transformed impossible situation, a new faith, a new life. And I'm asking you now to do these things in our hearts, and I know that your word in this text, the first miracle of Jesus, would be so instructive. The first miracle of Jesus breaking forth like the, the dawn of the first day. This is what Second Corinthians describes as the old has passed away and the new has come. So God, give us a taste of the new wine today, we pray. Give us a taste of your new creation in our hearts, in our relationships, in our work, in our ministry. Lord Jesus, turn the water in the bitterness, in the ordinary, in the sadness, in the struggle, in the shame. Turn that into something good and glorious and fresh and new today, we pray. We pray this in your name, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Amen. Let's now read from John's Gospel, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Who's that, guys? Mary. Amen to that. You know your Bible. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples, and let's name them one by one in order. Just kidding. Okay. Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who draw on the water know, knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Amen. 
This is the word of the Lord, and let's say together, thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. We're looking today at the wedding, the wonder, and the witness of Jesus' first miracle. The wedding was something rather ordinary. There have been lots of weddings in the course of history, right? You've probably been to some weddings yourself. Some of you probably been more than others. Some of you have probably been to your own wedding several times, unfortunately. But the wedding at this place in John's Gospel is just an ordinary event. You don't even get the name of the bride and groom in this wedding. And that's what weddings are about, the bride and the groom, right? We don't even know who they were. Because this wedding is about the glory of someone else. Who's that? The glory of Jesus being manifested. Rod and Betty, my mother and father-in-law, just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary in Indiana. We went to a, an Amish restaurant. We really partied hard, I tell you, in a celebration of those 50 years. And at the wedding, they asked me to read the newspaper clipping of the account, the chronicle of their wedding 50 years ago in Kirkoven, Minnesota. So I took out that old yellow newspaper, and I began reading. And I was amazed as I read that very, very detailed account of how this must have been the main event in Kirkoven that week. That was the news in Minnesota, their wedding. Rod and Betty. The wedding party, they were all named one by one in the account. The, the family, they all got named too. The food, it was described in great detail what was served. The flowers on the table, what kind of flowers they were. The dress, what it was made of. And the bridesmaids' dresses. And what the groom and groomsmen wore. Even as I began to read this letter, I began in anticipating kind of in a sarcastic way what could they possibly name next and so I began saying and Maribel poured the coffee and Aunt Susu you know folded the napkins and wrapped the silverware and to my amazement that was actually the next line in the newspaper Mrs. Owens poured the coffee and her friend Mrs. Smith helped wash the dishes afterwards you know it was amazing how much detail was given at their wedding it was an extraordinary day for them what a day of uh, detail and beauty and pageantry. We don't get any of that here at this wedding. We just get, there was a wedding. Oh, it was in Cana. And this ordinary event had something ordinary happen like all weddings have had a problem. They ran out of wine. They ran out of wine. Jesus, we learned in this first point about this wedding, Jesus is with us in ordinary life. He's with us in the things that happen all the time. The problems, the celebrations. He's with you at your wedding. He's with you at worship. He's with you at work. He's with you at play. He's with you when you pray. He's with you when you're praying in the closet or He's with you if you're in the closet. You know what I'm saying? He's with you all the time. Whether you're struggling with sin or whether you're living in freedom. He's with you in your addiction. He's with you in your poverty. He's with you in your blessings and in your joy. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us in every day of our lives. This is a Jesus, a Savior, a Messiah who cares about you. Whether you're exercising, whether you're online, He cares about what you watch and what you put in your body. He, he cares about what you eat. He cares about when you're in the bathroom. He cares about every moment of your day. The, the mundane, the ordinary, Jesus walks with us in all of life. Jesus, His mother, and His twelve disciples were invited to a village wedding. That's pretty cool, because the pastor sometimes doesn't get invited to certain parties, you know. But this was a party that Jesus got invited to, and all of his followers as well. Here's a relationship tip for you, if you're not married. 
if you do get married, invite Jesus to your wedding. That's just a freebie, okay? Let's, let's move on. And, and by the way, if, if you're not married, while you're looking to get married, while you're dating, invite Jesus into your relationships. Don't you know that he's the one that created relationships? He's the one that created marriages? He invented hormones? Invite Jesus into this. Why? Because Jesus has invited you first into relationship, into a wedding, to a feast. Jesus has invited you first. Return the favor and respond to that invitation. He alone can bring true joy. He alone can bring true happiness. He is the master of the feast. We're learning from this passage. Now, don't you feel important, if you're like Jesus and the disciples, don't you feel important when you get invited to a wedding? Don't you feel like that? I should have gotten invited. I'm kind of a popular guy. I'm a popular girl. Of course. And then that realization dawns on you, wait a minute, that means it's going to cost me. I've got to buy a gift. And if it's out of town, I've got to travel and figure out how to take off of work and all of these things. And so, if you're me, you turn to your wife and say, what are we going to give this beautiful young couple? And, you know, do we have any of those leftover wedding gifts that we got 19 years ago? No, we ran out of those a long time ago, recycling. The, so, what are we going to do then? There's a problem. Wait, there's a solution. The bride and groom and the wedding complex industry of our generation has come up with a solution. It's called the wedding registry. Here's what the wedding registry is. You don't have to get us anything for our wedding. But if you do, please get it from this list. On and on, page after page, wedding registry. That reminds me of something else that goes on and on. The wedding feast that Jesus was a part of. The Jewish wedding feast could go on up to seven days. And this village probably was going on for at least multiple days, having this party for this bride and groom when Jesus and his disciples were approached and Mary pulled Jesus off on the side and said, Jesus, we have a problem. They ran out of wine. Wine? What? Wait, hold on. Is that in your Bible? Let me see. Verse, where is that anyway? Verse 3? They have no wine? Is this a Presbyterian translation of the Bible or what? Are you kidding me? Jesus was at a party where there was wine served? The shame. The scandal. I thought that wine was bad. I thought that nobody should be at a party where there's alcohol served. Well, the Jewish wedding. Have you seen the wedding, my big fat Greek wedding? The Jewish wedding, not much different. You know, oompa, everybody's celebrating and there's drinking wine and everybody's loud. This is probably the type of wedding this was. It probably wasn't a real quiet, somber uh, occasion. And yes, they served wine. And yes, they ran out of wine. And why do you think they ran out of wine? Because, dun, 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 they drank the wine. And that's, guess what they said when the wine was all gone? We want more. We want more. They were out of wine. They wanted more wine for their celebration. And guess what? Jesus was there. And he wasn't saying, stop, stop it, stop having fun, stop drinking wine. He did not say, thou shalt not have fun at a wedding. No, he actually made more wine. That's what he did. You know, they called Jesus a glutton and a drunkard because he ate with sinners and he feasted and he drank. Now, that's an exaggeration. Jesus wasn't a sinner. He was not a drunkard or a glutton. But there was a kernel of truth in the fact that Jesus drank wine and he ate meals and he hung out at parties. And so people twisted the truth and they exaggerated, as they often do, and said he's a, he's a drunkard. No, but Jesus made wine at this party when they ran out. The fundamentalists, the people that say you shouldn't touch the stuff, you, 
you know, we're very strict on this. We don't drink a single drop of alcohol. They would have said to Jesus, wait a minute, Jesus, hold on. This isn't real wine. You know, some of the more conservative churches will say, um, this is unfermented grape juice, just like Welch's. That's what they drank about. That was called wine. That's what they drank back in those days. Right, Jesus? And Jesus says, well, actually, if you read the Greek word, if you study the Greek and go to seminary, the, the, the Greek word for wine is actually translated as wine. That's what it actually is. Yeah, it's not grape juice. It's, it's wine. And they will say, well, surely, Jesus, we know in ancient times they would dilute the wine. They would take six parts of water, one part of wine, mix it together to kind of, you know, diminish the effects upon the brain and the, the, the heart. And, 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 and then we say, well, um, I don't know. The, the master of the feast here in verse 10 says, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. Not the most weak wine I've ever tasted. Hmm. Well, some people, I guess they just act more Christian than Christ himself, don't they? You know, you'll, you'll make the wine, Jesus. You'll, you'll create joy in our lives, but we don't want to enjoy anything. We don't want to touch the stuff that you made. And, and here you are at a wedding where people drank all the wine and are looking for more and having a good time, and here we are being so somber, so serious in the church. I mean, look at yourselves. Are you having fun yet? I'm having fun up here. If you're not having fun yet, ask yourself, what is it about church that I think I can't enjoy the Word of God or the Spirit of Jesus in my life? When the maitre d', the master of the feast, tasted this, this cup that was dipped out for him, the best wine he'd ever had, he said, this is well worth the wait. This is the best of the best. He never had anything like this. And you have to ask yourself, why am I trying to restrict myself from things that Jesus has created? Jesus gives us his best. We say, no thanks, I'm more holy than that. And I'm not just talking about alcohol. Of course, I commend you if you have a conviction that you shouldn't drink to excess or maybe drink at all. That's fine if that's your conviction. I'm not trying to promote drinking today. I'm trying to promote Jesus and his goodness and joy. I'm not trying to promote that alcohol is the answer to your problems, especially if those of you that have a problem with it. You struggle with addiction. I don't want you to touch the stuff if you have an addiction or problem with it. Please, don't hear me saying that. What I am saying, though, is are we trying to be more spiritual than the spirit of the living God? Or am I running away from Jesus? Because I've been told my whole life that religion is for the frozen chosen. Religion is, is a place, a church is a place where you're not going to enjoy yourself. So what, what else should you do on Sundays? Well, go to brunch. Go see the fireworks or the, the there in, you know, water show downtown. Do anything but go to church. I mean, church is boring. Jesus, boring. The Christian life, snore. It's a snoozer. It's, it's not for people who want to enjoy the city of Chicago and be entertained and live a good, comfortable life. No. That's what you've been told. That's what you've thought. But Jesus is challenging that assumption today. He's saying, no, no, I created the very food you're enjoying. I created the very wine that's intoxicating. I created the very creation that you're going out to enjoy on a beautiful Sunday morning instead of being at worship. There's a city full of people, six million of them in Chicago, that are not in church. In the metro area, six million out of eight million people, not in any church, not even a cult church. Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, you name it, even the cult. Two million people 
go to church regularly in Chicago, the other six million, just do something else. Because why would they come to church? They can do so many other things to enjoy themselves. Jesus is saying, you like wine? I created the grapes. I designed fermentation. You like sex? I planned that out. I designed your body to have enjoyment. I created marriage to enjoy that intimacy. A a lifelong enjoyment, not just something that's available to you, but something that's commanded. Go and enjoy yourself with your husband or wife. Enjoy the things I've created for you in this life. Do it for my glory. You want to enjoy life? He says, I am life. I give joy, fullness of joy, eternal pleasures at your right hand. That's what the psalmist said to God. Don't do life without Jesus. He is life. He's the life of the party. He is the master of the feast. Jesus walks with us in the ordinary. But he brings us something new. He brings us something real. He takes the boring out of the bitterness of life and he makes it sweet again. Dare I even say he makes life buzz with joy. He is better than the best wine for people who are looking for the best that life has to give. For people that are looking for eternal joy, Jesus is it. Anybody want to say amen to that? Amen. The wonder of the wedding comes next. The wonder of what happened at this wedding. Jesus unexpectedly works in extraordinary ways in this ordinary event. Jesus unexpectedly works wonders, extraordinary things in this ordinary event. Every wedding has at least one problem. My wedding had a couple. First, I borrowed my brother-in-law's motorcycle. Don't worry, I'm not running my motorcycles anymore after Josiah almost died in one, but he's here with us today in all of his health and fullness, helping us work on our church building and my own home. Thank you so much. I don't ride motorcycles anymore after a couple of close calls. But the, the night before my wedding, our reception was at the church, and I put my wife-to-be on the back of my brother-in-law's bike, and I rode to the restaurant, and then got a serious chewing out by my mom. What were you doing on a motorcycle, young man? I was a nurse in the emergency room for many years, and I saw plenty of heads split open. I can't believe it. I was like, Mom, Mom, okay, I got it. This is my wedding reception, my re- rehearsal dinner. Can we just talk about it later, okay? I won't do it again tonight, I promise. Then the second mishap, on the day of the wedding itself, the ceremony in the church. Here we are, greeting all the guests at the end of the ceremony, row by row, going down. And who was there that was totally uninvited, but, you guessed it, Shannon's ex-boyfriend. We didn't invite him. What are you doing here? And what was he doing? He was bowling like a little baby. Sorry, sucker. She's mine now. Okay? Okay? We made the best of a bad situation. Okay? Every wedding has at least one problem. Today's story tells us that they ran out of wine. In verse 3, Mary says to Jesus, They have no wine. This was a major problem. Why? Because in those days, it was not Jesus' responsibility to bring wine to the wedding, even though I guess you could bring it as a gift, but it was the groom's responsibility to provide wine in his family. And if you didn't have enough wine, guess what? The bride's family could sue you Legally, they could take you to court because you didn't provide enough joy to lubricate the festival. You know those rabbis had a saying, no wine, no joy. We've run out of wine. Whoops. This is a problem. And Jesus says in verse 4, Woman, 
We're speaking of his mother, Mary. Mary, the Virgin Mary, the mother of the Savior. Woman? Literally, what does this have to do with me or you? What does this have to do with you and me? Now, polite but firm is Jesus' tone, I, I, I gather here, as I'm studying this text. Polite but firm. Literally, if, if you're translating the word woman, it might be something like we would say, ma'am. Just kind of formal. But polite, ma'am, I'm not the bartender. That's pretty much what he's saying. What does this have to do with me? A, a conflict. A, a, a minor conflict between Jesus and Mary, perhaps. The mother of the Savior and the Son of God. They probably didn't have a lot of conflict like I have with my girls. Or you might have with your kids or conflicts you've created for your parents. But imagine how proud Mary must have been of Jesus. And here at this wedding, she's still proud of him. She's ready for him to show his skills or like do his Messiah thing. I mean, she had a whole career path kind of mapped out in her head, like how this Messiah thing should go. Started off doing really well in Hebrew school, like straight A's. Good job, Jesus. And he got a little older. Never gave me any trouble as a boy. Always did his chores without complaining. And now, Jesus, they're out of wine. You know what to do, Jesus. Make me proud. Come on, boy. Well, Jesus says, ma'am, there's a kingdom agenda that overrides even your good intention, Jewishly mother instincts. There's a kingdom agenda. This hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. See, we want something extraordinary. We want a miracle. We want more wine. We want more joy. We want wonders. Now! I want them now. Jesus, they're out. Do it now. Jesus, I'm praying, give me my future husband or wife now. Give me my job now. Give me that money that I need now. I want the miracle. But Jesus is teaching us here something. I'm the Lord of miracles. I'm the master of the feast. I determine sovereignly when I will give good gifts to my people, including the things that you so desperately want and pray for. The timing is all God's. The waiting is all ours. And that's a difficult place to be. But that's part of the wonder. Part of the wonder of the miracle, part of the wonder of the extraordinary things Jesus does is that he does it in his timing. And it wouldn't work very well if he only did it when you asked him, immediately when you asked him. He says, my hour has not yet come. So what's going to happen? Midnight will strike, and then you know everybody will turn into a pumpkin if they don't have wine. So before midnight, that's my hour. I'm going to reveal my miracle. No, it's not about midnight. What does he mean, my hour has not yet come? Say, we're on a different agenda, Mary. Um, you just want something to satisfy the people, but I'm trying to do something to satisfy the sins of the world. And my hour is code language in John for the death on the cross that I will soon face within a few years' time. If you don't believe me, just read the Gospel of John and look for that phrase, my hour, and you'll see that every reference to it is something like John 7.30. They were seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And if you fast forward to an actual reference to the cross, John 13.1, Jesus knew that his hour had come for him to depart out of this world. So, he began the process washing his disciples' feet, being betrayed, dying for you and for me. But Mary is undeterred by this, my hour has not yet come, line that Jesus tells her. And so she turns to the servants and she says, do whatever he asks. Do whatever he tells you. And this is one of the greatest statements Mary must have ever made in her life. This is a great sermon in one line. Do whatever Jesus tells you. 
I mean, if, if you could just live your life by that one phrase, wouldn't your life be transformed? Wouldn't the bitterness and the pain of obedience and waiting and trying sins and failing and having shame, wouldn't all that be so much different if you just did what Jesus told you? If you did what Jesus told you, even the bitterness would have sweetness and joy at the end of it. You'd experience new wine being made from just the ordinary things because Jesus does extraordinary things. We should do whatever he tells us. This takes faith. One commentator, J.C. Ryle, says, his sayings must be our doings. He says it with his mouth. I do it from my heart, with my hands, and my life. This takes faith because we get impatient. We get distracted. We say, Jesus, I tried it your way, but now I'm going to try it my way. That doesn't work. It takes faith. It takes perseverance. People run out of wine at weddings sometimes, and they want more. Jesus says, wait. Patiently. People run out of love, even after they get married. And Jesus says, have faith, have hope. Once again, kindle your love at the fire of my love for you. People get disappointed in the long road of singleness or the bitterness of divorce. And Jesus says, I can do extraordinary things in your hearts that has that ordinary, dull pain. Just do what I tell you. And in obedience, you'll find great joy and delight and blessing. Do whatever he tells you, okay? Servants, Jesus says, take these six large stone jars that held about 20 to 30 gallons apiece. Six times about 50 gallons average is 150 gallons. Might have been up to 180 gallons. So between 150 to 180 gallons of water. That's a lot of water. And I want you to fill that up with water. Okay? I need two volunteers. Thank you. What's your name? Elliot. Elliot, I need another volunteer. Donovan, can you guys go to the back there to the table and get that water cooler and just bring it up to the front for me, please? Thanks. Is that thing full? That's good. Just bring it up to the front. Thanks. All right. Come on up. Six jars containing 25 to 30 gallons apiece. You can just set it right there, please. Now, you can, oh, hold on, just pick it back up and bring it back to that table for me. Thank you. So do that 30 times, okay? 30 times. All right. While they do that, let's explain something here. When Jesus tells, and if you guys need a break, just tap out, tap somebody on the shoulder, and tag team, and somebody else will keep doing it, okay? So just keep that going for a while. Now, I want you to listen to me as I'm, as I'm preaching here. Can you imagine the servant? I want you to go out to the well, wherever that might have been in the village. Probably wasn't like in their backyard, you know, wells are central. And he said, go to the well, and I want you to bring 150 to 180 gallons of water and, and fill these big stone jars here. So they probably had their little jars of a gallon or two, maybe three, and back and forth they went, wearing out this path over and over, over and over. Probably, you know, if there are five servants making 30 trips, they could have filled that 150 gallons up pretty quickly. But can you imagine, as they're doing that, what they must be thinking? What are we doing here? Jesus, we're just wearing the same path back and forth. Mary's wondering, what's taking so long for this miracle to happen? All we have here in these jars is water. I asked you to do something about the wine. They couldn't run out to Benny's Beverage Depot and buy some bottles of wine. I mean, they didn't even have, like, Walmart. I get this at Walmart. It's like, you know, $3.50. I'm sorry. I'm kind of cheap that way. You don't want to blow the whole budget. But they couldn't just run out and get them. They had to go to the well, fill this thing up, Many, many, many times. Are you guys getting tired yet? You want to take a break? 
Okay, you can you can stop when you want to. That, I think we get the point. If you want to keep doing it, feel free. How about one more trip to the back, and then we'll leave it alone, okay? We'll move on to another point here. Now, And one of the jobs was to carry the water cooler every morning to physical training out on the field. And that was about a quarter of a mile walk from the parking lot. So I would fill up in my bathtub every morning around 4.30 or so, carry it out there like 4.45, and I would just carry the water cooler, you know, to the field. And I set it on this big stand up there, like a platform where the sergeant stood. And, and then no one would ever drink the water at all. But I had to fill up all the way. Regulation, fill up all the way, carry out the platform. Now we didn't need water because we had. Camelback, little backpacks full of water, and it was kind of cold. It was early in the morning. We weren't drinking our entire Camelback in an hour, and so we never touched it. So every day, well, that was one of the most exciting times of my life when I realized that I was leaving Fort Jackson and could give this cooler to someone else. And I was thanks for half the training at that point. And so, can you imagine the 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 pain and the the wonder of waiting? Why, Jesus? Why is it taking so long? We've obeyed you 30 times. We've gone back and forth doing what you said, and I still don't see the fruit. I still don't have the joy. I still don't have a miracle. You know what Jesus is telling us? Don't lose hope. Faith perseveres. The wonder will eventually come. And when that maitre d', that master of the feast, tasted that wine, he said, it was worth the wait. I've never tasted anything like this. Now, he didn't know how it happened. The servants knew. The master was just like, where did this come from? And that's what we should be saying about the power of God when he surprises us with a gift. After all the waiting, after all the working, we're going to be surprised when you least expected it. I mean, you want it now, but Jesus says, hold on, when you least expect it, I'm going to surprise you with the best I can give. See, usually the host would bring out not the wine that we use for communion. He'd bring out the reserved, select, top shelf, fine, well-aged wine. He'd bring that out first so everyone would say, ooh, la, la, this is fantastic. Where, where did it come from? And, and you know, who's this, um, the, what is it called, a venture, the person that makes the wine? What vintage is this, anyway? You know, they act like all snobby and stuff, and they, they swirl it, and they smell it, and, you know, the bouquet on it, and how heady it is, and all this. And yet, this, this guy recognizes, usually people bring out the best in the beginning, and then once everyone's a little tipsy, a little buzz, and a little cloudy, then you bring out the cheap stuff, and they don't know the difference. But in this case, he says, wow, props to the groom. He brought the best last. He saved the best for last. The wonder came at the end. The true wine, Jesus does that. He saves the best for last. Now, the third and final point here about this wedding where Jesus does this wonder is that this is a witness to something greater. This is a sign. Jesus gives us a sign, it's called. He doesn't call it a miracle at the end of the chapter, verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11. This is the first of his signs. This is the book of signs. It is a miracle, but it's a sign pointing to something. What does a sign do? It signifies something more significant. You see the word sign is in the word significant. The sign points to the greater, more significant reality. The wine isn't the best part, okay? That's why I don't really care if you say, well, I should really start drinking wine now after the sermon. That's not my point. My point is start coming to Jesus more and being filled with his intoxicating love and his sweet favor and blessing in your life. The sign of the new wine is pointing to something else greater, 
First, a new cleansing. The new wine that's made is pointing to a new cleansing. The sign is about a deeper purification. In verse 6, we're told that there were 150 gallons of water, maybe 180. But then John goes to great lengths to point out something very specific. These water jars were made of stone and they were for the Jewish rite of purification. What's that mean? It wasn't just drinking water like we've got in this cooler. It was for a Jew to ritually cleanse himself, to prepare himself or herself for worship. A ritual, religious cleansing on the outside. You remember what John chapter 1 told us? That the law came through Moses. You know, Moses, the one that received the Ten Commandments. The law came through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Remember Moses? When he was calling the people out of Egypt, what was his first sign? I mean, there's a hint, because we're preaching from John chapter 2 today. Jesus' first sign was turning water to wine. That's your hint. That's your softball. Now, come on, knock it out of the park. What was Moses' first sign? The plague upon Egypt? Water to blood, right. Good job, Mom. Good job. Moses' first sign, turning water to blood as a curse upon Pharaoh and his people. What is Jesus' first sign? Turning water into wine, which would become the sign for his blood in the New Covenant. Not a curse that we would bear, the curse that he bore. He was killed, his blood was shed, his wine in his veins was given for you and me so that we could be blessed, so we could be free, so we could worship God freely and not be under the rule of Pharaoh and sin and Satan and the world any longer. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What does John chapter 1 tell us about John the Baptist? John the Baptist. He baptized with water. He was the, the water washer. Jesus, though, he says, has come to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. I baptize you, John said, for repentance and to show the sign of repentance. You're going to put water outside of your body and you're going to wash yourself physically, externally. But Jesus, he says, the one I'm not even worthy to touch is sandals. He says, he will baptize you inside with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He'll purify you. He will cleanse you with an inner baptism, a powerful, real, life-giving baptism. This is new wine. This is new spiritual life for you who have just been dealing with stone jars and rituals and religion up till now. The end of the old religion. The beginning of something totally new. New life, new grace, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Fill to the brim. Fill those jars up all the way to the brim until they're spilling over. That's how Jesus comes. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. When He comes, He fills us. If you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, if you're not full of joy for Jesus, maybe He hasn't come. There's a song that says, When Jesus comes, He comes in power. Pour out your Spirit on us this hour. When Jesus comes, you know it. Extraordinary things begin to happen. Even if it takes a while, you begin seeing a change in your perspective, in your attitude, in your heart. He is ritually no longer cleansing us, but really cleansing us, purifying us. The guilt begins to go. The courage begins to come. The joy in obeying replaces the drudgery and obligation that you feel that religion puts on you. This is a reality. Jesus gives us a new cleansing, and it's all because of his new wine, his blood shed for us. French pastor, Jean Calvin, says, 
Wine is the perfect sign. Hmm? You agree? Wine is the perfect sign for communion. Wine is the perfect sign because it, um, how do you say it in English? Um, a bitter drink. It's a bitter drink that brings great joy. I like that. The blood of Jesus. The wine that was given as the sign. It's, it's bitter at first taste, but it brings great joy. Revelation 7.14 says, The redeemed of the Lord have washed their robes and made them white. They must have used some really good bleach, right? They, they washed those robes, got them nice and clean, nice and bright. They washed their robes and made them white. And then the big surprise comes. They washed them in the blood of the Lamb. How does blood wash us clean? Because He died in our place. We, we were the dirty sinners, and His precious blood was shed for us, and He died in our place. And we are washed clean, purified to the level of the conscience, Hebrews tells us. Your conscience has been sprinkled with clean water. The blood of Jesus and His death has opened up a new and living way to enter into God's presence and stand there with no shame, fully clothed in Jesus' righteousness, not your own. Wine is the sign of a new cleansing through Jesus' blood. Wine is secondly a sign of a new marriage. A new marriage. Now, I know when we read a passage about marriage, many of you are not married. Some of you are single people who are longing to be married. Others of you are married people who are longing to be single, yet again. And that always covers like 75% of the room when I say that. And then some of us are happily married and still working on getting better at it. But we're all, 100% of us, Without exception, and everyone in this world, everyone out on the block, everyone in the city, everyone at the University of Chicago, everyone in Woodlawn or Englewood or Hyde Park or anywhere in Chicago, we're all longing for the same thing. People in Pakistan are longing for this. People in Antarctica, if they happen to be there right now, you know, doing some research maybe, we're all longing for the same thing. We want to be loved with a faithful, true love. We want to be redeemed from ourselves and the things around us that hurt us. We want to be rescued by a powerful, true, faithful love. And this sign that Jesus gives, this wine, is a sign of a new love. Jesus says, greater love, the world has never seen, greater love has no man, woman, boy, or girl than this. There's no love that can compare to this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. He says, a new commandment I give you. What was new about the commandment that Jesus gave them? What was his commandment? I mean, this is like the commandment Jesus gave us Christians. What is it? A new commandment I give you. Love one another. That's not new. That was in Leviticus. That's in the Bible. That's in Deuteronomy 6. That's an that's a old verse. But he says, love one another as I have loved you. That's what's new. Look what I've done. I've poured out my life unto death. The perfect one for the unworthy sinners. The righteous one for the unrighteous. The Son of God for the sons and daughters of men and women. I have given you the greatest love you'll ever taste. This is the new wine. This is what a wedding is all about. This is what true marriage is, is my love, my love to you, my people, my church. John chapter 3, verse 29, Jesus is identified as the bridegroom. Now, that might be confusing because he's not the bride. He's the bridegroom. I mean, he's just the groom. Okay, that's how we would say it today. Jesus is the groom. John the Baptist says, he must become greater, I must become less. I'm just the best man setting it up for him. I'm just holding the ring and I give it to him and he seals the deal and he takes his bride and purifies her. 
Jesus is the groom. God so loved the world that he gave us a groom. He gave us his son so that whoever believes in him, whoever comes to him by faith, will not perish, will not just keep tasting water or washing on the outside, but we will have life, real life, eternal life. After 19 years of marriage, I need to hear this passage. Because I see in this passage a groom that failed. I see a, a, a guy in this passage, a, a husband who's just becoming the husband, and he didn't get enough wine. You got how many bottles of wine did you bring? I told you to get 50. You got how many? Are you kidding me? We're out of wine on our wedding? Like, this is the biggest day of our lives. This is, for an ancient peasant, like, the huge pinnacle of life. Like, we are the king and queens today. We actually wear crowns in the Jewish tradition because we are what it's all about today. We feast. All of our families here, all of our friends, they're all here for us. And we ran out of wine? He failed. I failed. I need this gospel that comes in a stone jar today. Do you? Have you been failing? Have you been struggling with the same old sins? Do you need something new? Are you tired of the same old patterns, the same old people, the same old problems, the same old perspectives? I need something new. I need, I need new wine. I need a new love to work through me, for my wife and my children and my church, my friends and my family. And Jesus is slowly changing our water to wine. He's filling our emptiness. Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9 says, One day there will be a wedding feast of the Lamb. It's prepared. If you're looking into the future, one day the feast will be spread out and all prepared. And it says, the bride of Christ, the church, will show up and they will be prepared, fully clothed in wedding garments, the righteousness of Christ and the righteous deeds that they have done upon the earth through his power. There is a feast. It is being prepared. There is new wine which will brim over and abound. And the only question is, will you be prepared? For that day, will you be clothed in Christ, not in your own righteousness, not in your own religion, not in your own tasting of the world, but will you come to him to taste the best wine, the new wine? Have we made ourselves ready? The, the final point here about the sign is that wine is a sign of the new age, a sign of a new creation. So the wine isn't the point. Are you, are you with me on that? The wine is just a sign pointing past itself to something else, which is the new creation. Now, when John tells us in chapter 1, verse 1, that in the beginning, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who's the Word? Jesus. And the Word in the beginning reminds us of the creation. So God created the heavens and the earth, but Jesus did as well. He was the Word in the beginning, who was with God, and He was God in the beginning. He was with God, and he created all things. So, in the beginning, refers back to the creation and how Jesus was a part of that. Now, in John chapter 2, verse 11, it says this is the first of his signs. It uses the same Greek word. It doesn't use the, the, the word that could just mean, like, first in chronological order. Well, here's the first sign, the second one, the third, so on and so forth. He's using the same word, arche, in the Greek, which is beginning. This is the beginning. It's something important. This is new creation. This is day seven. What does that remind you of? Creation week, right? This is day seven of Jesus' first week in his ministry. And he's doing something new. It's a new era. It's a new epoch. It's a new creation happening. I like what one writer says. The creator came to this party 
this wedding, and he was told that there was no more wine, and he said, fill the water, jar, the water jars with water. And, and the writer says, when the water saw its creator, it blushed. Think about that. It'll come to you later. When the water saw its creator, it blushed. The water was turned to wine by the one who made grace, made the water, made the whole earth, gives us joy and gladness. He saves the best for last. There's a new thing happening in the earth. It's been happening since Jesus came, and it's still happening, and it's only going to continue to progress and spread. The kingdom of God is like this. It's like wine being fermented. There's a little bit here, and then it begins spreading throughout the whole batch of wine. Pretty soon you have a delicious vintage. Never tasted anything like this wine. Jesus will give us, his people, at the end. He's saving the best for last. The, the Bible says in one of the prophets, the, the, the latter glory is always better than the former glory. That's a principle you can count on. The later glory that God has for you is always better than the former glory. You think you've seen something good? Now just wait. Hold on. It's going to get better. God promises that. We have water now. Wine is coming. We have sadness and bitterness and tears now. We, have, we will be tasting wine in the future kingdom of God. Hosea says in chapter 9, verse 13 and 14, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, the Lord, when the mountains, okay, picture the mountains, majestic and tall. The mountains will drip with sweet wine. Drip? 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 Just a drip? Well, no, no, it's just poetic. Listen, the next phrase is parallel, which means it explains the dripping. And the hills will flow with it. Flow. 180 gallons, 180 million gallons, 180 billion gallons, infinitely sweet and pure and gladdening is Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit and His gifts to His people. In that last day, the mountains will drip constantly and the hills will flow regularly with wine and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and plant vineyards and drink their wine. It's not just going to be like, oh, look at the wine flowing. We're going to be drinking it too. The, the best wine and the, the greatest of food is going to be spread at the feast of the wedding of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and doesn't just say, now your sins are removed, we're done. He says, now I'm going to give you something much better than all the wine you've been sipping at at the table of the world. I'm going to give you my own life. I'm going to give you my own blood. Will you come to me and have me taste and see that I am good? I'm going to give you my resurrection power. I'm going to raise you from the dead because I'm not just a dead Savior who bled for you. I'm a living Savior who loves you. And we are inviting you to this wedding feast. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and join us for all eternity as we celebrate the creation and the redemption and the consummation when all things will be made new, when all the old things will pass away. The miracle of the wine is simply a sign calling you to have a new heart, calling you to have a new life in Christ, calling you to have a new wonder in Him once again, to turn away from your idols of pleasure and joy which will never satisfy you, to turn away from the old ways, the old washings, the old things you try to do to scrub yourself clean of sin and shame. He says, come to me, and we will overflow with the feast of wine. Come to my big, fat Jewish wedding. He says, come to the wedding feast of the Lamb. We're going to party. And it's not just seven days of joy and feasting. It's eternity. All eternity long. It will last forever and ever and ever. This is the wedding feast of the Lamb. You're all invited. Behold, the old things have passed away. 
and the new is here and it's coming. Let's trust in that as we pray and come to the table that the, the Lamb Himself has prepared for us. Lord Jesus, you said your kingdom is not about eating and drinking, although we thank you that we get to eat and drink in the kingdom. We thank you that we get to eat and drink now, that we get to eat and drink of the Lord's Supper, and that one day we'll eat and drink in the new heavens and new earth, and you said you will not drink the fruit of the vine, the wine, until the day that you come back in your kingdom. So we look forward to eating and drinking with you, with all the nations who are redeemed by your blood. But we know that even then, the kingdom of heaven is not about eating and drinking. This sermon is not about wine. The kingdom is about righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. That's what you're about. You're about righteousness. Help us, Lord, to turn away from the sipping of the cup of the world's wine. It does not satisfy us. It gets us drunk, and it makes us forget our problems, and we wake up, and the problems are even worse. The kingdom is about joy. We will never be happy if we stay away from church and the Bible and the people of God and your spirit. Search us and find us. Have your way with us. Fill us, we pray, Holy Spirit. Help us not to run from you any longer, but to find joy in you. And the kingdom of God is about peace. Mary and Jesus had a little minor conflict that day, I believe. We have conflicts in our church. Help us to get over the pettiness of conflicts and always expecting you to do what we want, and always expecting other people to do what we want. Lord, work this miracle for me. I've prayed for so long. I've been waiting. I've been walking back and forth from the well to the house, and it's just not happening. What's wrong with these people around me? I keep telling them what to do, and they're not doing what Jesus said. They're not doing what I said. We get so frustrated. God, your kingdom is about peace. Give us a foretaste, even today, of your hour, the hour of your death, the hour of your cross, the hour of true life, overflowing to the world. Give us a foretaste of the true wine and that true wedding feast as we come to gather before you at this table. Lord Jesus, we've come. You've come. Prepare us now as your bride to receive you and be clothed in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.